We are in 2 Samuel this morning, chapter 21, page 273. If you're using the Bible that's provided in front of you under the chair, 273. And we want to take a look at this passage of Scripture and talk a little bit about the gospel and the Gibeonites. Um, before we jump into our text, though, let me, let me go to the Lord in prayer once again. Father, how appropriate our last song, have mercy on us. Our sin is great, and we are deserving of eternal judgment. But in Christ, we receive mercy and forgiveness and your love, and we can come into full relationship with you because Christ has taken our sin on himself and has given us his righteousness. And that is really the only reason that we are here this morning, able to worship you. Left to ourselves, our, our hearts are far from pure, um, far from able to worship you, but as we rest in the work of Christ, we, we can come to you with boldness, come to you with pure hearts as we confess our sin um, and look to the cross for forgiveness. This, this morning, Lord, we, we come with many burdens, we come with many cares, sorrows and joys. For those that come with sorrow, we, we pray that you would give unexplainable joy to them. For those that come with brokenness, and wounds and hurts, that you would bind up those wounds and you would provide healing. For those that have come with doubts and questions, that you would provide faith and assurance. And you would take your word now and you would minister to our hearts as you would see fit. Jesus, thank you for the sacrifice of yourself and the love that you've shown both to the Father and to, to us, to redeem us uh, as your covenant people. In Jesus' name, amen. What do we do with a text like this? Um, I read this to one person, and I said, well, what are your initial thoughts? And they said, there's a lot of dead people. And... Really, when I first read this text, I was thinking similar things. What do I do with this passage? How, how do I apply this to my life? Because oftentimes when we come to Scripture, we come with these kind of thoughts in mind. I need something for my work day or my day ahead of me, something that I can take and I can correct in my life, uh, this area that I'm struggling with. How does this help in my life today? What do I need to be doing? And I think those are relevant questions, but I think even a better question as we come to any passage of Scripture, especially passages of Scripture like this, is not what am I to be doing, but rather what am I learning about God? What is God revealing him, uh, to me about himself? 
Scripture is, is a book of wisdom. It is God's revelation to us. He's, we're learning about ourselves. We're learning about what he's done from the beginning of creation all the way to the end of creation, but he's revealing himself to us. This is who I am. Now, the Bible gives very explicit things when it tells us about who he is. We read things like, God is love. God is holy. I think there's a... Uh, a slide coming here that's just going to kind of throw all of the attributes, many of the attributes, not all of them, of God, about who God is. God is all of these different things. And we read explicit truths like this, and they are great because they are very direct and they tell us who God is, but sometimes we're left with, okay, what do, what do I do with this? God is immutable, that is, he is unchanging. So why is that relevant in my life today? And while explicit truths are necessary and they're given to us to make things clear, more so we learn about who God is as he's interacting with people in their lives. Because that's, that's, how he, that's what he's doing in our lives every day. And so we read stories like this and we come to passages like this and and we ask, what is God revealing about himself? How is he dealing with people in this text? Because the way God is dealing with Israel and the Gibeonites in this passage is the same way that he deals with us today. It's no difference. He's the same God, the same characteristics, the same qualities, beginning from the garden with Adam and Eve all the way up to the end times. God is the same God, and he's dealing with people the same way through the message of the gospel. And so in this passage, the glories of the gospel are on full display. And we want to explore this life-giving message in this story. We're going we're gonna to do so by looking at four things, sin exposed, justice required, judgment accepted, and mercy extended. So let's begin and looking at verses one and two, sin exposed. In verse one and two, we have this famine that's been happening for three years, okay? I, I ask uh, the kids when I, when I teach them from time to time, we talk about famine. Famine means no food. That's a problem for us. We need food. So this famine is here for three years, and after a three-year period, you would think, Something's not right. This is not just a bad year of crops. Something is happening. God is intervening in the life of Israel, and David seeks the face of the Lord. And the Lord reveals, and he says, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites, although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them. Key phrase. Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. So before we get into what is this sin, let me pause and not make any assumptions. Because many of you, when I say the word sin, you think exactly what sin is because you've been around that word a lot. But some of you, perhaps, you don't really have any understanding of, 
of Christianity or this whole church thing. And so when I say sin, you might not know exactly what we're talking about. Sin, in a very simplified form, is an offense against God. God, has, as creator, sets the rules in our world. And those rules are based on his character, his qualities, the things, some of the things that were listed up there. And so when we sin, we reject his rule in our lives. We say, God, no thanks. I know that you are rightfully king and ruler, but I will be the ruler of my own life. I will live my life apart from you. It's ultimately rebellion against God. And sometimes it comes out in the form of action. Oftentimes it does. But it can be the things that we think and the motives of the heart. Sin is rebellion against God. This sin, you'll notice, was exposed through discipline. It's exposed through the famine. God sovereignly brought a famine into the the lives of the people of Israel so that Israel would seek him out and discover what the sin was that God is dealing with. So what's the sin? Well, the Gibeonites in Joshua chapter 9 and chapter 10, the Gibeonites, they sort of, in a deceitful sort of way, make a covenant with Israel. Israel uh, comes into the land under the, the, the rule, I, I don't say rule, but leadership of Joshua, and they destroy Jericho, they destroy Ai, and God has promised to give them all of this land, the land of Israel. The Gibeonites hear what's happening, and they come up with a plan, and they say, hey, we're, we're like next in line here. If they keep, if they keep pushing east, they're going to overthrow us. So let's, let's do this. Let's pretend that we are travelers from a faraway land, and they, they dress themselves up with dusty clothes, worn out, worn out sandals, their food, the bread that they were carrying, they dried it out so it looked like they were traveling for a long, long time. And they came to the people of Israel and they said, hey, listen, we, we're from a faraway land, we're traveling, but we've heard the things that God is doing, and we want to let you know that we, we, we will be your servants. Well, the people of Israel, at first they were like, well, how do we know that you're not our neighbors? But they never consulted God, and they decided to enter into a covenant, an agreement with the Gibeonites, the Hivites. And they enter into this agreement, and they say, we will not harm you. We will not expel you from the land. Well, three days later, that's about how far uh, the Gibeonites on the journey, on a, a three-day journey, were from where uh, the, Israel, the Israelites were at that time, they find out that the Gibeonites are not, in fact, from a faraway land. They're actually living right in their midst. But they have already come into the, to an agreement with the Gibeonites before God. And so, in fact, in chapter 10 and 11, they come to the Gibeonites' aid and they're, they're, they're now friends. They're, they're joined because of this covenant. At some point in Saul's reign, we don't have record of this, Saul, in his zeal for, the, for Israel and Judah, seeks to get rid of the Gibeonites, get them out of the land, destroy them. And in the process, the covenant that Israel had made with the Gibeonites was broken. Saul acting as king on behalf of the nation of Israel, okay, 
tries to destroy the Gibeonites, and this covenant is broken. God, God is a God of truth. God is a covenant-keeping God. Jehovah is a covenant-keeping God, and he expects this of his people as well. And so there was a problem in the midst of the Israelites' camp, in, their, in the midst of their nation, that God is going to deal with. He's exposing this sin in the nation of Israel. It's important to note that God is not indifferent to sin. We have a couple um, families, friends of ours in, in our neighborhood who are Muslim. And in some conversations that I've had with them, uh, we would start getting into comparing Christianity and Islam and sharing the gospel. And I would try to challenge certain things, certain assumptions that I think most people have. Okay, so how does Allah deal with sin? Well, it's like a scale, you know, and it's the good. As long as your good outweighs your bad, then you can come into paradise. And that's really, you know, in a very simplified way what, what they would see. And I say, well, how... How, how, do you, how do you deal with the bad, though? Because just by doing good things, it doesn't take away the sin. The sin remains. The bad still remains. And we sin against God. And they would stop, they would stop me and say, whoa, 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 wait. Allah is so far up here, and we are so far down here. He doesn't have, he doesn't have time or concern for the petty things that we do. He's not that intimate in our lives. So when we sin, we might sin against other people, but our sin is not against God. He's too high above that. However, that is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is concerned with dealing with sin. All sin is against God. From the beginning of creation, God is dealing with Adam and Eve's disobedience to his command. He's concerned about that. He sets the rules. This is his world. And David himself knows this. In Psalm 51, verse 4, he says, regarding the sin of adultery and the murder of Uriah the Hittite, he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. We sin against God. God is concerned with our sin. He's not indifferent to it. You'll notice that God is the one that reveals the sin. And only God can reveal sin for what it truly is. When, when they're faced with this famine, what does David do? David sought the face of the Lord. He goes to God and says, God, something's wrong. Something's wrong in our nation. Reveal to me what it is. Today, many people kind of downplay the view, our view of sin. You know, we, we make mistakes. We have slip-ups. Uh, we're, we're obviously not perfect people. We have moments of weakness. But this type of view of sin, that it's just a little slip-up, it's just, we we're, we're, we're just have a bad habit, stems from a basic idea that we, we are by nature good people. But when God reveals sin, he reveals that we are wicked and guilty before him. Wicked to the core. Scripture tells us that we are totally corrupt. And there's a huge difference between admitting that we mess up sometimes and admitting that we are completely and totally wicked and we have nothing good in and of ourselves. 
Huge difference. And, and I see this in my life because I battle this kind of thinking. I have a bad habit of wanting to know the future and prepare, have all my ducks in a row. It's just a bad habit. I mean, we're supposed to, know, we're supposed to plan ahead, right? Everybody does it. And that's just, that's just a bad habit that I have. That's kind of what I tell myself. And then God begins to reveal in my life, pull back the blinders, and then I start to see, you know what, this is not just a bad habit. This is not just, you know, I'm with everybody else and it, it's okay. No, my, my heart is filled with faithlessness, with anxiety, with doubt, with worry, with fear. And all of a sudden, this, this little bad habit, God begins to reveal that it is actually a heart full of sin. When God reveals sin, he reveals it for what it truly is. And you might say, well, wait a minute here. I admit that I, I mess up and I make mistakes, but filled with sin, totally wicked, totally corrupt, I, I do a lot of good things for people. Well, notice in verse number one, what the Lord reveals. He says, there is blood guilt on Saul and his house. Several translations describe Saul's house in this phrase as a bloody house. Uh, one translation, it is for Saul and his bloody house or his blood-stained house that this has come upon you. Now, every, every moment of Saul's life, he's not murdering people as he's king. But this, this phrase here, it's the idea that his, 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 he is known for the, being blood-stained, blood-thirsty, blood, his bloody house. He's been stained. It's a part of who he is. And it can be said of us that we are sin-stained people. That's who we are. Our houses are full of sin. And just like Israel, we are guilty as charged. Now, maybe if we wait long enough, that sin will just kind of go away. If I wait long enough, God will forget about it. He'll get over it. But the passing of time does not right our wrongs. Time does not, simply just time does not make the offenses go away. If you've ever been hurt or offended by someone, the simple passing of time doesn't, doesn't make that go away. In reality, oftentimes, the longer the offense lingers without restitution, without forgiveness, the harder it is to remedy the situation. Here, God had not forgotten the sin of the Gibeonites, or the sin against the Gibeonites. For Israel, this meant that they're going to have to deal with this sin. It's been exposed to them. It's, they've been confronted with it. Many years have passed. Again, we don't have a record of when Saul did this, but David's reign is, is, is several years and even decades into his reign. There might be some people in Israel that they don't ever even remember this happening. They can't think back to, oh yeah, I remember that happening. A whole new generation may have started to come up, but it didn't make the problem go away. As a nation, Israel was guilty as charged, and God was exposing their sin. Let me, let me flip it to the other side. For the Gibeonites, the Gibeonites, it's been several, several years 
when this has happened, and God has not forgotten their injustice. God did not forget the slaughtering of their people. He remembered them because God is a friend to the oppressed. God doesn't forget the wrongs that have been done to you. He doesn't play favorites. He hasn't forgotten us. And and I do want to be careful here because our society is wrestling with issues of injustice. And, And truthfully, I have not gone through what many people in our nation have gone through what many people around our world have gone through, and maybe what many of you in this room have gone through. But when we come to the gospel, when we come to the God of the Bible, the beauty of this message is that we can trust that God is going to right every wrong. What anyone has done against you, God has not forgotten that, and he will make that right. One day, Jesus will come and bring perfect judgment to all people, including those that have wronged you. So we have sin has been exposed. Next, we need to understand that justice is required. There is a penalty for this sin. God is a just God. Sin carries a penalty, just like any crime that we commit in our, in our state today, in our nation, carries a penalty with it. Sin carries a, a similar penalty, an eternal penalty, penalty. And God will hold each of us accountable for our sin. Psalm 37, 28, it says, the Lord loves justice. It would have been just for this famine to continue on. For the people of Israel to starve because of the sin they committed. It would have been justice for an equal exchange of blood. Again, no record of the story It could have been 100 people that were killed. It could have been in the thousands. So an equal exchange of blood, two Old Testament passages talk about blood demands blood. Genesis 9 and verse number 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. In the law, going into the law, Exodus 21 and verse 12, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Blood demands blood. That would be just. Well, God directs David to the Gibeonites. And he says, basically, go to the Gibeonites and find out what what they want. The, The sin was against God. The sin was against the Gibeonites. David goes to the Gibeonites and says, What do you want? And let me point out here, this is not revenge-driven on the part of the Gibeonites. This is not revenge. They weren't seeking this out. They didn't come to David and say, hey, many years ago, you guys tried to wipe us out of this land. We demand something be done. We want to get even. There's a difference between revenge and justice. Someone says it like this, justice refers to the process of law where wrongdoers are judged and punished fairly. Revenge is the act of harming or hurting someone as a punishment for something they have done. The main difference between justice and revenge is their aim. Justice aims to right a wrong, whereas revenge simply aims to get even. We become revenge-driven when we fail to see our own sin. 
when it's all about getting get, that other person getting what they deserve, we get into that mindset because we forget what we deserve. We overlook our own sin. Here, the Gibeonites, it's not about revenge, but it's about justice. And this whole thing is sanctioned by God. Verse number three, David asks this question, what shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? So whatever they are going to say is contingent, or the Lord's blessing is contingent on whatever they're going to say. This is all before the Lord. Verse number six, they say, let seven of his sons, Saul's sons, be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord. I believe that God put this into their hearts, this request. He's in full control of the situation, but the Gibeonites are openly stating that they want God to see what's happening and accept it. This is all sanctioned by God. So David asks, how can I make this right? How can I make atonement? And the Gibeonites, as, as has been read, Notice in verse 4, it's not about silver and gold between us and Saul and his house. You can't, you can't buy us off. And we will not put to death any man in Israel. But in verse 5, the king who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us that they may be hanged before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord, and David agrees, I will give them. Justice is required. God is in this. And the agreement is seven of Saul's offspring will be killed. Justice is carried out. It's five, five of Saul's grandsons, two of his sons from Rizpah. They are killed together. But you'll notice in verse number seven, the king spared Mephibosheth. Years and years earlier, David and Jonathan, the son of Saul, made a covenant together that David would not wipe out Jonathan's offspring when he became king. David was not going to break one covenant to fulfill another covenant. And he spares Mephibosheth and honors that covenant before the Lord. This morning, justice is required for our sins. Something has to be done. We are guilty as charged before God. Our sin is against him, and God requires us to deal with, deal with it. Like the Gibeonites, we can't buy our way out of this. We can't pay God off with money, silver, and gold. Only blood can cover your sin. Romans 6.23 tells us that the penalty of sin is death. Physical death spiritual death, separation from life, separation from God himself in judgment forever in hell. So Israel here has been confronted with their sin. Their sin demands justice, which has been carried out. And as we continue in the story, we see that judgment has been accepted. You'll notice that there's no protest from the people in all of this. They knew the nation was guilty. They understood that and they accepted it, but there is great sorrow. Rizpah, the, the mom of two of these sons, is mourning for days and days as these seven sons are killed. 
in Israel's place. And again, we see in verse number nine that they, were, they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. Deuteronomy 21 and verse 23 says this, anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. You might have heard it like this, cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. These seven men, their lives were given for the nation of Israel. They were the substitute. Either God was going to require equal blood or there was going to be some that would be a substitute. Their life was given for others and as a result, God's anger was appeased. When you do a quick search on the words anger and wrath, there are 470 verses in the Bible that use this, the, the, these words. And the majority of the time, it's speaking about God's wrath. This is not a popular subject today. Many people don't like to talk about appeasing God's anger, that our sin angers God and carries a, a penalty and that God will judge that sin. But the wrath of God is critical to our understanding of the gospel. Without it, we lose so much. We, we, we lose, I mean, if God isn't angered by sin, then why punish it? And if God isn't angered by sin, then why do, why do we need mercy? Why do we need salvation? Why do we need his love? Why is this story even recorded for us? But when we understand the depth of our sin, the penalty that it carries, and the, the, the anger and the wrath of God that will be poured out on us for our sin, this doesn't diminish God's love, but it enhances God's love. Because I see more fully what I deserve. God hates my sin, and he's going to judge, me, judge it. But when he shows me love and mercy, boy, that just, that just enhances it so much greater than if I don't really deserve anything. So God's anger is appeased. And we want to spend the rest of our time this morning considering that as judgment is accepted, mercy is being extended. Verse 14 was the conclusion of our story in our text. And it says, after that, God responded to the plea for the land. Once again, God blessed the land. The famine was lifted. The sin had been dealt with. It had been paid in full. And mercy has been extended. But I want to note several things about mercy. Number one, mercy starts way earlier than we think. Mercy just doesn't come into this story in verse 14 where God answers the plea for the land and lifts the famine Mercy starts all the way back at the beginning when God begins to expose the sin of Israel. Daily mercy is what these Israelites are receiving. God's mercy, Jeremiah tells us, is new every morning. It's in the little things and we need fresh mercy because our sin is a daily struggle. Conviction of sin is God's mercy. We aren't just waiting for a future day of mercy, but in Christ, mercy is received as we experience the forgiveness of God, 
the cleansing of our sin. We come into intimate relationship with God and we're growing in godliness. All of this is God's mercy. Boy, I know in my life, I miss so many little aspects of God's mercy. Rarely do I look at the revealing of my sin as his hand of mercy in my life. But mercy starts way earlier than we think. A second thing I want to think about mercy, mercy comes through God's covenant. Covenant mercy is for God's covenant people. God is dealing with the nation of Israel. His covenant people from Abraham all the way through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob throughout the Old Testament. Covenant mercy is for God's covenant people. And today, mercy can only be found in Christ. God's mercy is extended to all believers because of Christ. You say, well, what about people that aren't believers? John 3.36 tells us this, that the wrath of God remains on them. Not everyone experiences the saving mercy of God. Only God's covenant people where God's wrath remains where mercy is not found. Jesus Christ ushered in a new covenant and it is by faith alone in Christ alone that people are brought into this covenant and experience the eternal fullness of God's tender mercy. God's mercy is for his covenant people Mercy as well comes through proper justice. Justice had to be carried out. It had to be accepted. And only when it was served and accepted was Israel's relationship restored and God's full blessing given back out to the land. This morning for the believer, and I don't know your hearts, but if you would consider yourself a believer this morning, justice has already been served. It's already been provided for you. Atonement has already been made. Our substitute has already come and taken our place. First Peter chapter 1, in eight, verses 18 and 19, it, Peter writes this, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, you can't buy it, but with the precious blood of Christ. Blood demands blood, like that of a lamb without spot and blemish. Judgment for our sin has already been paid for, and it's already been accepted by the Father. As a result, we as believers experience the blessings of God. Because at the cross, Jesus took our sin on himself. He substituted himself, and he died our death on the cross. Our sin should have placed us on the cross. Instead, he for our sin in our place. And like these seven men, he became a curse. Galatians chapter three and verse 13, Christ redeemed us believers from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And then it quotes Deuteronomy, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You and I deserve this judgment. This was, this was ours to bear. God's Wrath, though, is appeased as Christ bore it in our place. Sin is dealt with once and for all. Believers, you can rest and rejoice knowing that your sin debt, my sin debt, your sin debt is paid in full. 
You don't have to pay it for it anymore. It's been done. Jesus said, it is finished. As he hung on the cross in his last breath, your accounts has not only been wiped clean, but all of Jesus' righteousness has been credited to your accounts. His robe of righteousness is placed on you. And before God, it's as if you have never sinned. So often we carry unnecessary guilt or we tried to make amends for the things that we've done wrong. Well, I, I fell yesterday, so now I need, to, I need to be extra spiritual today to make up for that. But not only is this unnecessary, but it's really a slap in the face to Jesus himself. Because what we're saying is, Jesus, what you did on the cross is not fully sufficient to cover my sin. I need to make amends for that. I need to make an atonement for that in my own place. And I, really, as I think about the story, I can't help but wonder if there were Gibeonites who wanted Israel to pay. They wanted Israel to get everything that was coming to them. God, just give them all that they deserve. There were 2,000 of us killed, kill 2,000 of them. And then God showed them mercy. I'm reading into it. I don't know. Maybe there weren't, but maybe there were. If I, if I know people, if I know my own hearts, there probably were people that were wanting more than what was done. Maybe you want people to get what they deserve, but let's be reminded that God has shown us mercy as well. God has shown you mercy in revealing your sin. If you have seen that and then bringing you and drawing you to faith in Christ, forgiving your sin and paying your debt in full. And because God is merciful, we can, we can let go of the grudges. We can let go of the bitterness and the anger towards our neighbor, towards our friend. I'm not, I generally like to think good of people, but I'm not that naive to think that there's not people in this room that are dealing with that very thing. And it's eating away at them. But think about how God has been merciful to you. The last thing we want to consider about mercy before we wrap up is that mercy extends further and runs deeper than you can ever imagine. God will wrap his mercy around you like a giant bear hug. Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes will have mercy. That is a promise for us to hold on to. What you don't read in Israel's history as you continue to read through the rest of 2 Samuel, the kings, the prophets, what you, what you won't read is them ever dealing with this sin again. It has been dealt with. It has been paid in full God has accepted this and moving forward, they never have to deal with it again. The depth of your sin is no match for the depth of God's mercy. Trust it. Trust it in your life. Whatever you're struggling with, whatever sin that you're battling that you need to confess, that you need to seek forgiveness from someone else and you're afraid of what God might do, that he might bring down the hammer. I, I know what that feels like. But you know what I found to be true? As we confess that sin, 
God's mercy comes flooding back. Whatever your past, you will find mercy at the foot of the cross, and it is sweet. This morning, do you, do you see your sin? A very basic question, but do you see your sin for what it is that you are deserving of God's eternal punishment because of your sin against him? Do you see that justice is required and it's deserved? And if you don't, if you don't believe that, if you don't get that, the, the rest of the gospel, the rest of the, this whole Christianity thing, it's not going to make any sense. It's just not. We must see our sin, and if you don't see your sin, plead with God to reveal your sin for what it truly is. But the truth is, we, we all sin, and we sin all the time. And some of, us need, some of us, we need mercy for the things that were said in the car on the way to worship this morning. Some of us need mercy for the attitude that we've had at work this last week. Some of us need mercy for what we've viewed on the TV or our computer or tablet last night. And it's in these moments of sin that stories like we find here in 2 Samuel 21 become so refreshing because we see how God has dealt with people's sin in the past. And he's dealing with it the same way today. He's exposing sin. He's requiring justice. And in Christ, judgment has been given on Christ and accepted by the Father. And mercy has been extended to all who are in Christ. My encouragement to you this morning is to rest today in the finished work of Christ on your behalf. Rest in the work that he's already accomplished because he is our only hope. Let's close in prayer.